0: Hi, everyone. I am Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you can join us on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio today. We're going to have a really interesting conversation, as always. But before I introduce our guest today, I'm just going to do a couple of shout outs. First, for those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people. And maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. We interview people all around the world, from those diagnosed to family and friends, to advocates, entertainers, authors, researchers, and a variety of businesses. So we always want to make a comfortable educational spot for you to enjoy and to hopefully share the show with others as well. Because, you know, every three seconds, somebody is getting diagnosed with dementia. And that could easily hit your family or circle of friends real easily. So it's best to be prepared and just have some general knowledge. Um, There's so much fear around this disease. My own mom lived with it for 30 years. And I can tell you, there's a lot of joyful moments and a lot of good life to be had. So don't let the title of a disease scare you. I also want to let you know Alzheimer Speaks has a whole bunch of free resources. So just go to our main page, alzheimerspeaks.com, click on the free resource tab, and there you will have a variety of, of tools and resources and, and even things that uh, you can participate in or your loved one with dementia can participate in. And I also want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory, where you can find lots of of free resources there as well. Uh, No one's going to ask you to sign in, no personal information. Uh, We want this to be an easy, smooth experience uh, where, where you feel comfortable exploring all the options that are out there, many of which you've never heard of before.
1: adapt it.
0: Okay, we are back. And I can't wait uh, for you to meet our two guests today. We're going to be talking about three surprising secrets to live well through aging and illness. And I think that's something we all need. So ladies, I am so excited to have you both with us. Um, Before we get started, I'm going to have each of you go ahead and introduce yourself. And Ashwani, if you don't mind introducing uh, yourself, kind of giving us a little bit of background, that would be great.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having us here. I'm just really excited to have this conversation. Um, So I'm Dr. Ashwani Bapat. I'm an aging and illness coach with Epine MD. I'm also a board-certified palliative care doctor, and I completed my internal medicine residency and fellowship in palliative and hospice care at Yale University, um, and I now help people who are navigating aging and illness and
3: helping them navigate it with confidence.
0: Wonderful. Lisa, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
3: Sure, and I also want to thank you, Lori, for this wonderful opportunity to to meet with you today. Um, I am Lisa Catalano. I'm an aging and illness coach with a Pionee MD and an independently licensed clinical social worker. I have a specialty certification in hospice and palliative care, and I've been strictly focused in hospice and palliative care for about ten years now. Um, I have over twenty years of experience helping adults um, of all ages facing progressive illness. Navigate the complexity of medical decision making. It's really been a true privilege uh, to be able to do that and to be here with you today.
0: Well, I I'm so glad to have you both on here with your expertise because man, this is a this is a heavy topic for families. I mean, they really struggle on where do I go, what do I do, um, how do I how do I do that. So having you know, a coach and support is uh, is extremely beneficial. Before we get into our, our full line of questioning um, regarding your career paths and how you're supporting people, I always like to ask everybody how they have been personally touched by dementia, you know, and, and maybe you haven't. So, uh, Lisa, I'm going to have you go first, if you don't mind.
3: Sure. Uh, Professionally, I've worked in a medical setting for over 20 years, and a large portion of the population that I served and cared for did have an underlying diagnosis of dementia. Uh, So I learned so much from them and primarily how to be empathic towards the experience of the care partner. Um, That's been a a huge learning uh, experience for me personally, I watched my mother-in-law succumb to this long and complex illness. Um, I will say I first noticed it, I think it was the second year that she abdicated hosting Thanksgiving to me, um, and being Italian cooking and, and baking were like a huge part of her genetic makeup. So we were in the kitchen together, uh, and I'll never forget, she was holding an ingredient in her hand, uh, and she was looking at it confused, um, I happened to notice her out of the corner of my eye. Um, I looked over and my heart just took a second, you know, to, to really register what it was I was seeing. And I saw her struggling. And of course that protection, that sort of protective mechanism kicks in. And I wanted to go in there and save her from what she was recognizing was, uh, you know, confusion. Um, and, you know, I, Waited a second, and she kind of caught herself and was able to get back to the task at hand. I want to say the rest of the weekend probably went off without much of an incident. Um, but about six months later, she was in fact diagnosed with dementia. And I think if I look back, um, it was very obvious to me that there were little episodes, as we like to call them, or moments uh, that my heart registered, but my my head—I should say my head—registered, but my heart couldn't catch up.
0: Yeah, and that's very common. I remember. Moments with my mom um, in the kitchen, too. And and one time she she used to love to make spaghetti. And we all sat down to eat her spaghetti and we just about all spit it out at once because she just for whatever reason, put a ton of salt in it. I mean, it was just like, oh, you know, yeah. and, you know, it was just heartbreaking because she was always such a good cook and, you know, had all that stuff nailed down. And, and so we had to we had to kind of regroup at that point. Ashwani, how about you?
2: Yeah, so I would say that professionally, I've worked with a lot of folks that have um, a diagnosis of some form of advanced dementia, um, because by the time I saw them, they were really kind of in and out of the hospital. Um, But on a personal level, um, my paternal grandmother and now my dad actually are dealing with my My dad is now dealing with the diagnosis of dementia. And that's been a real eye opener because to be honest, I don't think I saw much of early dementia professionally. And there are moments where he'll come to visit. I'm like struggling to put this balance bike together for my son. And he sees what I'm doing. And within 20 minutes, without even looking at the instructions manual, he has that balance bike put together. And in those moments, I'm like, oh, maybe the doctors are wrong. Maybe he doesn't have dementia. And then in another moment, I'll see him trying to open a door. We have this door that doesn't have a doorknob, but you press a button and it opens. And I'll see him kind of like lingering there, fiddling with it, trying to open the door. He'll go do something else. Then he'll come back to fiddle with that door. Um, And in those moments, I'm like, oh, wow. Wow something is happening in its brain, and it's not right.
0: Yeah, it, it is interesting, because sometimes they're just so sharp, and, you know, right on task, and then other moments, it's like, what happened, you know, and, and they're asking the same thing, you know, they're wondering yeah. what it is. Uh, I think one of the comments, uh, somebody from my dementia chat said, uh, these are all people that live with dementia, and they're like, our, our, our mind is like Swiss cheese, but we never know where the holes are going to be. We never know what we're going to be able to do and what we're not going to be able to do at any given time. And I and I found that to be a real interesting analogy uh, to look at. Um, I want you to, uh, Ashwani, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about your company and um, how it how it got started.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So let me tell you first what EpineMD does, and then I'll tell you kind of the backstory that got us excited about it. Um, So we basically help people navigate aging and illness to very difficult processes that are, quite frankly, scary, cause a lot of anxiety, and that everyone experiences. And our goal is really to help them navigate it with grace and confidence so that they can actually enjoy what matters most to them. So that's what we do. Um, and then in terms of what got us excited to start it, um, so I'm a palliative care doctor. And so, I, like I said, I work with a lot of patients who have advanced dementia. And in these situations, often the patient's values were never really captured, So it's always unclear, you know, what would this patient want in this situation? And because they have advanced dementia, they can't really communicate with us. They can't share their wishes with us. And so I'd often watch adult children who'd want to do everything for their mom and dad. And they would watch as, let's say, their mom got shuttled from the nursing home, to the hospital with a fever, she has a pneumonia. And in that admission, she gets more confused and more disoriented. They add more medications. And then when she kind of stabilizes, she's back to the nursing home. And then a couple of days later, she has that fever again. And so she shuttles back to the hospital and this becomes kind of like a revolving door. Um, And oftentimes the adult children, the caregivers, care partners are like, what are we doing? What's the plan? And the medical team is saying the same thing. They're like, what are we doing? What's the plan? And there just isn't a conversation about it. And so the whole entire reason we came up with a Pine was really to give caregivers, care partners, adult children a safe space where they can take a step back and really start a conversation about what their mom would want in this situation um, and what their mom would not want. And ideally it's really um, to help folks that are earlier on in dementia who are able to communicate, um, who can take part in this conversation to really start having this conversation with them. Um, because when you have this conversation, the goals of medical care and medical decision making become so much clearer And a lot of caregivers will actually experience like a weight lifted off their shoulders because they have clarity in terms of what they're doing and where they're going.
0: Oh, yeah. It makes a huge, huge difference. There's nothing worse than trying to second guess. Did I do the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? Um, Especially when families aren't always on the same page. And then you get that inner fighting on top of that. And it, it gets really complicated really quickly. I am. I'm so happy that you've launched this company because I think it's a huge value uh, to families. And I think also it's all about creating that safe space to have this conversation. Dying and illness—they're both kind of taboo topics for whatever reason in society. And yet, it's going to. Both of them are probably going to touch all of us at one point of our life, and we're not getting away from it. So. That added fear and stigma about these conversations can be crushing and really, in my opinion, do a lot of damage to families. And I think there's just a, a piece that comes with having these tough conversations because really, you know, you, you want to do what they want you to do. And, you know, when it takes out that, that second guessing and when you can rationalize with a, a third party you know, that's not part of the family dynamics yeah. that usually makes things go a little smoother too. I mean, I know there's a few families that can handle that themselves, but in my experience, they're few and far between. Um, most of us are dysfunctional at some <laughs> level, um, ex- especially when you add, you know, a traumatic um, event like like illness or or dying on the table there. So, So thank you for creating your company. Lisa, why don't you talk to us a little bit about being a caregiver coach and and what does that really entail?
3: You know, as we know, unfortunately, dementia is not a curable disease. So coaching is a model that moves away from being the fixer uh, to really embody the idea of empowerment. Um, We try to help uh, caregivers explore the opportunities, identify any obstacles, and we do so through powerful, meaning, meaningful questions, and deep listening. Uh, we work to partner with that individual and their own set of unique needs. Uh, I also want to be clear, it's really a self-directed process. Coaching is, is very much a self-directed process where the care partner um, really navigates this crisis um, with the support of the professionals alongside them, um, but it's really about them finding their own way. Um, and making sure that it's a very tailored and targeted and specific to the family unit's needs. Um, I have, um, I always say that we want to help our our care partners and patients lead their illness with confidence and competence. Um, And that's a big part of what we do as their partner. Um, More recently, I think I I always like to give examples. Uh, More recently, I, uh, I, Was in the caring for a 54 year old woman whose husband was recently diagnosed with vascular dementia. And unfortunately, it progressed far more quickly than was expected because of other underlying health conditions. And the couple, being young, never really talked about what was important to this patient, to her husband. Um, They never really had a conversation about what he would want medically if things were to progress. Um, But through our discussion, I helped her recognize that there's nobody that knows her husband better than her after 25 years. She knows him pretty darn well. Right. (laughs) Um, And she knows what quality of life is to him. She knows what he values. She knows what his priorities are, what brings meaning to his life. And that really helped her recognize that she can use that information um, with medical decision making. Um, she was really reassured that her, that she is her husband's best agent and advocate. And it was really powerful to see that transformation from her for from going from doubt and uncertainty, um, guilt, I think, a little bit too, to this increased confidence and assuredness. Um, make no mistake, it was still really hard. But I think she realized she knew more than she she had. And I don't know if we didn't have that conversation, if she would have come to that on her own. Um, so it wasn't me discovering anything for her. It was very much me showing her, me holding up that mirror to her and saying, you know, you know more than you do. Yeah. Well,
0: and I think being able to talk with someone who, who does this for a living, who says you're not alone in, in your frustrations and your anger and whatever other feelings you're having, your, your sadness, your grief, you know, that shows up in so many different ways, um, your confusion, with what are your options and and what is this supposed to look like? Because everybody has their, I think, preconceived ideas of of how we're supposed to act and what we're supposed to do. But um, so many people haven't really gone through the process personally, up close and personal like that. And there's a huge difference from watching in the way back and seeing other people experience that, versus actually being in those shoes and having to make those decisions and, and the struggle. So, you know, feeling part of what I see a caregiver coach do is, is take away the, the loneliness of feeling like nobody understands. Um, No one, no one knows what I'm going through. And you've seen so many people go through this. So by sharing stories and, and saying You know, encouraging people, you do know more than what you think, you know, Um, and this is why. But when those big, heavy decisions come on, we all feel the weight of the world is on top of us and that we are not prepared because we didn't have these conversations ahead of time. And it just becomes overwhelming. I'm sure you've seen some people who come in and they're just, I would imagine, just shut down,
3: um, almost paralyzed. A lot of times, you know, uh, care partners describe feeling really devalued or underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it takes a lot of courage to acknowledge that. Um, but so much of what we do is to help shine a light on how hard they're working and how much of themselves they're putting in to this work without any preparation, right? There was no class to take that explains to you, this is how you become a caregiver. Most people are unfortunately pushed into that role without any preparation uh, and very little, you know, knowledge um, ahead of time. And so we want to shine a light um, on the caregiver uh, you know, we want them to recognize their own skill sets, their own strengths, and really feel supported along the way. I think that's really important as well.
0: Definitely. Um, so, any anything that you want to add on to that? I think,
3: speaking
2: to the isolation that a lot of caregivers experience, a lot of caregivers, you know, even if they have siblings, um, the primary caregiver always carries a weight on their shoulders. And I think our role is really to be kind of that professional sounding board where they can, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, am I doing this right? Am I being a good enough like caregiver? Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times we spent time unpacking that question because it's usually laden with guilt or feeling like they failed because their mom has to move from living with them to living in an assisted living home. Um, And they're grappling with this inside all by themselves. And even if they have siblings or awesome friends, they may not feel comfortable sharing all of that with their siblings or with their friends. And so I think our big role is really to Hear, hear out what they're experiencing and be with them in those moments so that they don't feel isolated. So they don't feel alone. And so that they feel like, Hey, someone else is here with me and I'm not alone in this.
0: Yeah. You kind of give them that. I I got this moment, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's yeah. because, and you had mentioned about wanting to empower people, you know, giving them confidence along with the competency of really being able to evaluate the situation. And so often, we don't know how to evaluate when we're in the midst of grief. Like I said, some people just shut down. I mean, they just they they can't think they can't process, Um, they become so anxious or so detached. And, and, you know, that doesn't help the situation where you know you guys can really assist them through the process and you also had mentioned where you're you're listening you're listening to them this is a one on one thing they don't have to fit into the family dynamics of maybe they're the primary care partner but they also might be the baby of the family who's never really been respected for <laughs> for who they are or what they do i mean there's all of those different things that that come into play. I remember uh, bringing my my folks to an elder law attorney. And uh, Chris said, you know, as she was talking with my folks, uh, she said, you know, my dad didn't want me to be his power of attorney because he still saw me as the wild child, drug child, <laughs> you know, back, back in my younger years. And she said, I'm a well-respected, one of the top attorneys in the state, but he he doesn't see that in me, you know. He didn't see that in me for a long time. So sometimes those roles play a, a, almost a crushing role um, at times. And uh, and again, it can be the flip of the sword too, where someone you might think is really the black sheep of the family is kind of given the golden key to make all the decisions, and that can be a big uproar as well. And so, do you do you work, Ashwani, with helping families, not just, you know, an individual care partner through this?
2: Yeah. So usually we work with, um, either the primary caregiver, uh, the person living with the illness. So sometimes folks with earlier dementia and sometimes it's actually like siblings, uh, who are who may not be the primary caregiver who will reach out to us to be like look i am not physically there to take care of my mom or my dad i'm not the primary caregiver but i really want to make sure that my mom feels the love that we have for her, that we do right by her. And I'm not sure if my sister, who is the primary caregiver, is doing it right. (laughs) Um, And I have a couple choice words for my sister, but I don't know how to fix that. Like, I don't know how to share it with her so that she listens. I've tried to have this conversation. She won't listen. And of course, there are two sides to that story, right? But um, I think like Lisa always says, it's trying to find the common ground between the brother and the sister, between these two people that really do care for their mom or for their dad, and how can they work together to make sure that they do right by their mom or by their dad.
0: Yeah, it it is interesting how everyone approaches things differently. I have a a film that I, I go around the country and screen called A Timeless Love, and it shows that family dynamic um of uh, a mom who has early onset you know the husband who of course is trying to support her they have two kids one is one is at home one is you know often just visits and doesn't see everything and then mary who has dementia has a couple of siblings and everybody is approaching it different and mary's mom and her friends and the frustration of why don't they get it why don't they see what i see well, ask any police officer, nobody sees what the other guy sees. You know, that, I mean, that's kind of been a proven point from a, from long ago, but I think most are really interested in, in caring for love and they, they approach from whatever knowledge base they have. And we don't always. I, I know I didn't always look at it like that with my own family. It was like, come on, be like me, <laughs> you know. Choo, choo, you know? <laughs> and and I wanted I wanted like little mini clones of me because I thought I had it down pat, and it took a while for me to understand. And again, logically, I understood this, but I didn't really accept it or process it on my caring journey that variety really is the spice of life. And we don't want a bunch of little mini me's running around, you know, and that my folks um, needed diversity in their life. They, d- they deserved to be loved in different ways and cared for. And how do you get the family to come on board to accept these different ways and still allow these relationships to bloom and and um, empower the one you're caring for. And I think sometimes I think sometimes that's missed because we get into these controlling modes, you know, of of right or wrong. And then when you add our confusion with end of life on top of it, it gets really complicated for my own family my brothers really didn't want to do any of the planning. I tried to pull them in, but I think because I probably pushed them away in some, some areas over the 30 years I cared for my mom that they're like, well, then you just do it all. And I didn't even realize I was pushing them away. But after my dad died, we had a conversation and it went something, something like this. My brother said, well, you know, you're kind of a control freak. And I'm like, No, I'm organized. That's why I've been picked in the family, you know, but now, now when, when there's an uncomfortable conversation or situation, now I'm a control freak, which probably there's some truth to that. But I think a lot of it was, that was an excuse for them to avoid some emotions they didn't want to deal with. And so we had a a kind of an in-depth conversation but it was way too far into the disease process you know we had already lost my dad my mom was you know way on her road with dementia even though she lived with it for 30 years she lived another probably um 13 years with it you know we lost a lot of time as mm. as a family in terms of having that cuz we didn't really know about caregiver coaches and people to be out there and really support us and I think it's important for families to know that help is there and and you can heal not only the process in the in the individuals but the family unit as a whole and Ashwani tell me if I'm I'm wrong and Lisa uh, if I'm off base on that but that's my my perception of that
2: I think Lisa I'll let you handle handle that if you
3: no i think you know it's 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 a difficult time for everyone for the spouse mm-hmm. for the adult children i think uh those that are local have an experience if you're the adult child um taking on or assuming most of the responsibility of the day-to-day care needs There's an enmeshment that sometimes happens too, that it's such a part of your daily structure. So there's grief around, what will I do? How will I manage this? What will I do when it stops? Um, It's become such an inherent part of our identities. So there's the complexity of that. Then our away siblings really need time to catch up. They're hearing it, but hearing and seeing what's going on are two such different things. Um, And so a lot of the work I tend to do is with the away siblings who are just coming, you know, to catching up um, and coming to really recognize how hard things have gotten. They need time and space to be able to process that. And so a lot of times the work that I might do is to help offset the conversations between the siblings. Talk to me about what it's like. Talk to me about what you're seeing. Um, How long have you known You know, what are your worries and what are you hoping for? And how can you communicate with your caregiver sister, right? Um, So that you're both putting your mother at the center of all of this. So a lot of that family systems negotiation or mediation is a huge part of what I do. Um, But it's also really important, you know, to remind everybody to have empathy for the experience of the other, Right. Because there's the whole family unit that's affected, and that's one bubble. There are the individuals within that unit that are affected. That's another bubble. Um, and then there's the patient, the person who's living with illness, who's progressing, who's slowly slipping away from you. And all of you are just trying to capture more time. And so how do you do that? Um so yes, Lori, I <laughs> it resonates, and I'm sure it resonates with a lot of the listeners as well.
0: Yeah. Aslani, anything you want to add to
3: that? I think I also
2: just want to highlight that that this period of time when someone has a diagnosis like dementia, it affects that person. It affects their entire family unit. It affects their friends. Um, And talking, having conversations about what's important to them, what kind of care they want, or someone who's making decisions about that. That is really hard. Like I want everyone to understand that that is incredibly hard. It's emotional. It's heavy. You know, it's not the conversation you want to have over Christmas dinner. You know, it's not fun. It's not upbeat, right? Like it's really heavy. And so I also think it's okay to acknowledge that and be like, this is an uncomfortable conversation. I'm not used to having them. Um and there are some benefits that can come from it. So let me see if I can work through it. And I also say that like within a family unit, people communicate very differently. Um, and for families like I, my family, for example, uh, that is not used to talking about feelings or not used to talking about complicated things like health issues, for example, Um when when you're not used to talking about hard things and then all of a sudden your dad gets dementia and you got to have some serious conversations, um, you can't expect yourself to step up to the plate in that way. And at the same time, you can't expect your entire family to learn good communication skills to start talking about a hard thing. And so I think about this because I am professionally, like one of my skills is, communication and mediating between two people that may not be on the same page, but even within my family, I, I am the youngest. <laughs> um, I am still the baby. And so when it came time to having that conversation about what matters to my dad, um, my my mom and my dad, they didn't want to talk to me because they didn't feel comfortable. Uh, they didn't feel open about their worries and what they were hoping for they didn't feel comfortable sharing that and so I literally asked uh, Caitlin one of our other coaches um, to see if she'd be open to talking with them and thank god she did that and she spent the time doing that because now my brother and I like know exactly what my dad would want and um, as things progress we can make decisions that are informed by what he said by what my dad said Um, and so I just want to say like communicating about this even if you come from a family that communicates really well it's a whole other level
0: <laughs> oh exactly well and then you get into uh, i'll just use again my my example here i'm the middle child i have an older brother and a younger brother and yet i was the closest to my my parents And so, you know, I was, they referred to me as their nurse, their attorney, you name it. It, I took on that title, you know, for them and that role. And my older brother was just really upset, really offended. That's my role. That's my job. And yet my parents um, knew our personalities real clearly. And so even like when they met with the elder law attorney, they said, we'll have Mark pull the plug. Because we know he won't have a problem with that, where Scott and Lori will, you know, in in terms of roles of black and white, because he he's not the most compassionate guy. And he has, you know, all my life been one where it's, he's not a listener, it's, it's his vision, and that's the way the world should spin. And my folks didn't want that for themselves, they wanted their wishes, you know, to be told. And when you said, you know my folks didn't feel comfortable talking to me on that and i'm sure that had to hurt on multiple levels one because hey this is what i do for a living <laughs> you know other <laughs> other people trust me yeah. but again those family dynamics are so strong and um like you said thank god they were they were willing to talk to to somebody within your company so that you could get the answers that you needed but you know, and it might not have even been that they don't trust you. It might've just been too hard of a conversation to have knowing they don't want to leave you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think to be fair, I think even the moments when I initiated those types of conversations, it was hard for me to actually sit and listen to what my dad was saying.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because of course, yeah. I don't want him to leave me either. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and I think sometimes we don't look at those reasons. Yeah. It's easy to become um, defensive and hurt instead of going, gosh, this is just as hard on them as it is on me. And neither mm-hmm. of us really want to admit that it's not. Right. <laughs> we're both, yeah. we're both pushing, <laughs> pushing forward with that. Yeah. Well, this has just been a, a great conversation. If you are just tuning in, you're going to want to reel back and um, hear hear what we've been talking about Um, basically you know it's about caregiver coaching and how how can somebody support you through through illness and aging and again two things none of us are getting by in this life without it's (laughs) going to hit us or somebody we care about deeply and so to be able to have that support is extremely important um Lisa, do you want to give us um, your, your website
3: at all? So it's www.apinymd.com. Okay, wonderful. And you guys are also on
0: Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and LinkedIn. So yeah. lots of different ways that, uh, that you can find them. And on your website too, you have a free ebook Yes. Uh, which talks about three surprising secrets to living well, which I think we all need to hear about. On that one, so I want to I want to talk, um, Ashwini, if you don't mind, um, some of the benefits that that you have, and and definitely covering these three surprising secrets and what people can expect to find in in that downloadable piece.
2: Yeah, so that is a completely free ebook that we basically created based on the most common questions that we get asked. And so when most people think about what it takes to age well and to live well as they get older, most of people will think about, you know, eating healthy, exercising, doing crossword puzzles, Sudoku, Wordle, whatever it is. And that is incredibly important um, and One of the key ways to stay healthy and live well as you get older or as you live with an illness is really understanding how to navigate the healthcare system. And one of the first uh, secrets that we kind of dive into is what we've been talking about is how do you figure out what matters most to you now? Mm -hmm. So whether you are a caregiver, whether you're taking care of someone who's sick, whether you are living with an illness, you know, what does a good day look like to you and really writing that down. Um, And so the first secret is really getting clear on what's important to you. And in that ebook, we provide um, like the really important questions you want to start answering and how you can share your answers with family members, with important people in your life. And then, of course, we go into two other secrets. Um, The second secret being knowing actually what resources are available to you. And that, of course, depends on who you are um, if you're a caregiver, if you're living with illness, or if you're healthy and aging. Um, And making sure that you at least know what resources exist for you so that uh, one day, you can reach out. And ideally, you want to do this research before you kind of end up in a crisis situation. Um, And the third is really to communicate with your team. So you want to communicate with your family, you want to communicate with your friends about what's important to you. And you want to make sure you kind of keep the medical team involved as well and make sure you fold them into the loop. So this ebook is really, I encourage you to check it out because um, I think it's going to really change the way someone looks at their medical care and how they use their medical care to actually help them live as well as possible. That's what this ebook is about.
0: I love that. I, and I think, again, it's one of those things people don't want to think about, but, right. you know, everybody wants control of their life. They want to live smart. And then it's kind of like when aging or illness hits, it's like, nope, I give up. I give right. up. And I, I don't want to address that because it's a tough conversation. And it's like, you've wanted control of your life all along. Why would you give away the end of your life right. to, to not ha- and to not live the way you want? Um, And then I think if people understand, too, and you had mentioned this earlier, the guilt that family has by the unknowns, you know, you're removing that element and you're making it much easier on your loved ones to be able to sleep at night and not toss and turn going, did I make the right decision? Or should we have done that? Or, you know, I think that's what they wanted. But, you know, because I usually our inner critics, they're pretty big beasts when it comes to um a situation when we're in crisis and they're banging in our heads all the time (laughs) telling us all the things you know we shouldn't have done or maybe should have done different or um and it's really easy I think to get sucked into that inner critic when we're alone and again by being able to replay some of the conversations people are having with you going no they told me this was going to happen." This is a rational decision that we made. This is the best possible outcome without actually having this conversation if that wasn't able to be had before. But how sweet to just know this is what they wanted. This is, I mean, there's just such comfort in that. And I. I it saddens me that people sometimes are so scared to have the conversation um, because they're putting themselves in more of a crisis situation i think and and lisa i don't know if you look at it like that or not but i i just see it kind of adding to the situation when there's a when there's this this resistance
3: we talk about denial quite a bit in the way that our uh, you know hearts are protected our minds may absorb but our hearts take a while to catch up and so You know, so much of of what I hope for is to be able to attend to the here and now, what someone is able to digest and the pace at which they're able to digest it. Because we, you know, our hearts are tender organs. um, And there's enough, I I believe there's enough distress around us and we're absorbing it whether we realize it or not. So I really respect, you know, the the process for every unique individual. It's, It's not easy.
0: Yeah. Well, and I appreciate the fact that, you know, it is kind of that self-paced learning curve. You know, you're there to support. It's not a turn the switch. I'm going to give you A, B and C and you're going to walk out here and not have another worry in the world. That That's just not the way, <laughs> not the way it works. Um, usually there's other questions that come up, um, I would imagine, after these sessions. Now, one thing that I didn't ask, we talked about, you know, kind of dealing with families and care partners at, at all different levels from, from um, spouses and siblings and kids and friends and things do you ever do coaching to professionals I just think especially since Mm. COVID you know I think there's so much grief to be processed through that and even though we're past COVID I think everyone is overworked underpaid um, stretched in their positions and I think that there's still a lot of crisis going in, uh, you know, revolving around our care culture as a whole? Is that, is that a niche for you or something you're looking at in the future? Or this is, this is your lane, Ashwani? Do
2: you mean coaching for other like healthcare professionals?
0: Correct. Yeah.
2: So I haven't thought about that for this model for a Pine MD, because um, one of the biggest gaps that we really wanted to help with was around supporting caregivers and people living with illness and providing a support system that they wouldn't otherwise get from the healthcare system. Uh, That said, I know that I have a ton of colleagues that are actually doing incredible work to train up healthcare professionals, to train up healthcare professionals so that they have the kind of communication skills to start these conversations um, in during doctors' visits or in the hospital or in the clinic. Um, I think the truth still is that these are uncomfortable conversations for everyone, including healthcare professionals, especially in a culture where uh, the culture is around curing. It's about doing, like giving treatment, about giving medications, doing a procedure. It's very um, uh, procedural intensive, I would say, like around doing something and often uh, having a conversation as important as it is, is not a conversation that recognizes our mortality is still an incredibly uncomfortable conversation. I think partially because to have that type of conversation, you also have to, um, understand your own mortality and how you feel around that. Um, and of course we're all humans. And so we, we have feelings around that too. Um, but there is definitely training happening, uh, of other healthcare professionals by a lot of, um, like. Other organizations.
0: Okay, great. Well, and I I think it's important because the the more the professionals understand the the more empathy they're going to have for the family in terms of dealing with it. And I do agree. You know, typically our our healthcare system is coming from a fix it mentality, and I just think, gosh, if if we could change that perception, especially in the clinics. And if people were given resources, even saying here, here's a, here's a caregiver coach you can go talk to. Um, You know, these are some support groups, whatever it might be, they change the whole direction of those people walking out the door from feeling lost and alone to at least there's hope. Um, So many people I know have gotten a diagnosis and they leave the clinic with a prescription and another appointment. Most don't even get the number to the Alzheimer's Association and they go sit in the car and they cry for two hours because they can't even drive. Yeah, they are are so lost and they feel actually kind of abused and neglected in that process. And I know, you know, from talking with doctors, it's like, we don't know what to tell them. You know, that's not our forte. Well, there could be some alignment, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. to change that. And it would make the doctor feel better and it would make, you know, their, their patient and their clients feel better as well. And, uh, and then the other thing I wanted to point out with the doctors is they don't have time for these conversations. These aren't 15 minute conversations I'm imagining that you're having with people and they're like, next, next, you know, in the clinic and really push through. And so that works against the process as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, our sessions are usually one hour long, and even that feels like it isn't enough. And so obviously we schedule folks uh, for follow-up sessions, Um, but these are not conversations that can be had in 15 minutes, right? Um, And to do it right, to do it in a compassionate way, I think it takes time and it's, it's kind of that old school building a relationship with one person mm-hmm. um, with that one coach where, when you want to see them again, you can actually see the same coach again. Yeah. Um, you're not going to see their colleague or uh, someone else. And when you want to reach out to them, cause you want to talk something over, you can message them directly or you can call us directly Um and you won't get kind of the runaround that happens when you call a clinic, and you know, we know how those conversations go. Yeah.
0: Push the uh, button, and you're yeah. like, I just, <laughs> to to "I just want to talk to
2: someone. I just want to talk to someone that's <laughs> really
0: quick." Yeah, yeah. Well, this isn't a this isn't a quick oil change. You know, twenty minutes, and you're in and out. Fix, and in you know, see me in three or five thousand miles. That's that's not what this process is at all. We're talking about emotions that that vary and every situation is different just like they say every person with dementia is different but so is every care partner so is every family dynamic so is every environment that they're part of and so this is a real fluid um situation and you know, it's, it's nice to be able to connect the dots, but the the dots, the dots are still fluid in the chart, Mm -hmm. even if you're connecting them, you know, we all have our good and our bad days and and stuff. Now, um, Lisa, for your coaches that you work with, you know, are they primarily social workers like yourself? Or do you have chaplains and physicians and things
3: as well? Yeah, we are, in fact, a multidisciplinary team. So we have physicians, Chaplains, social workers, um, you know, we are more than our illness, and yet our illness uh, impacts every aspect of our life and how we live our life. And so we, uh, you know, a Piney MD uh, tries to attend to the biopsychosocial and spiritual needs of every individual. Um, And we're trained in these various dimensions of care so that we're able to um, help people navigate wholly. Um, It's a very holistic approach to care
0: now um ashwani like with um with palliative care and hospice they have like music therapists and things like that mm-hmm. is that part of your your company as well
2: it isn't part of it yet maybe in the future it's something that we can add and think about uh where we want to go in the future um but for right now we have actually made sure to have some of the key components that we feel are really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think it would be very cool to have um, music therapy or art therapy available, because that is something that we use in clinic or in the hospital with the people that we work with. And art and music brings out something else in, in in people, particularly in dementia as well. It's a very different way of communicating with someone. Um, so I think that's something that we can talk about as a team and think about for the future.
0: Yeah, there it, it does. It, it, it not only is helpful for those diagnosed, but for their care partners, it can bring some real solace and comfort too. I know um, I have a thing called Dementia Arts where, people with dementia showcase their artwork and they tell us all about it and what they feel. And they talk about getting into the zone. Like my spouse has to rip me away from what I'm working on to eat or go to bed. But they said, I'm just so calm. I'm just so comfortable. They're just in the zone. And that could be coloring. It could be painting. It could be um, woodworking, jewelry, all all kinds of different things that people are doing. Plus it's a, a stigma buster on top of it. And, um, and then you have that whole piece of when your body is calm. And this, I think it is even exaggerated even more in dementia, when their body is calm, and they feel aligned, their symptoms decrease. Yeah. And there's such benefit to that. So I mean, I'm, I'm such a social therapy, you know, type gal in terms of that holistic side. And, you know, same with music, just powerful, powerful stuff happens with music. And we, it's one of those things we all use probably on a daily basis, but we kind of take it for granted what it's really doing to our heart and our soul and our comfort level. Um, and, and so I think those are things we have to look at, uh, look at a little bit more. Do either of you have any last comments that you, anything that we missed that you'd like to cover?
2: Um, I think you know, I just want to recognize that most caregivers, like Lisa was saying, are unceremoniously dropped into that role. And I do think that having clarity around what you're working towards makes such a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's worth taking that time, you know, it may not be that much time, maybe it's an hour to really sit down and think about, you know, what is it that your mom or dad would want in the situation? Um, And how can you help them reach those goals? And I think that clarity makes decisions uh, just a little bit easier. It doesn't take away the stress and the pain and the emotions of um, watching your parent slip away, but at least it gives you something uh, that you feel like you're working towards.
0: Well, you know, one of the things too, when you have these conversations, sometimes they can be really one-sided. Like it's all about you. You're going to die first, you know? (laughs) And I mean, we don't come out and say it that way, but that's kind of how the conversation Mm -hmm. sometimes goes or how they feel. And when we can have a conversation together of you know, I've thought about this, I want to be cremated, or, you know, and then it offers someone else to say something different. I think of even the time of bringing my folks to the elder law attorney, my dad was like, Oh, we don't need that. You know, we, we don't have that much. And I'm like, everybody needs that you need healthcare directives. And, and he was just did not want to deal with his mortality. At this Mm -hmm. time, he had brain cancer. And I said, How about if Tom and I go with and we do it at the same time because we yeah. need this too. And I think sometimes people just project on the other person when they should really be going, I need to get my stuff in order too. I need a healthcare <laughs> declaration. I need this. I need that. I need to think about what I you know, what do I want my funeral or celebration of life to look like? You know, I even went to the to the um to the work of I wrote a letter. Because I wanted the last word at my celebration of life, you know, I wanted to, give, <laughs> I wanted to say thank you to my friends and family, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to make them laugh and think of good times, you know, and and I know not everyone's going to do that, but there's so many different ways that you can approach this. It doesn't have to be a sad thing <laughs> you know, anymore. There's a there's a company called Sendoffs um, that I. Just uh, talked with the other day, and and they're all about helping families customize whatever it is they want, mm-hmm. and and there's such I think great satisfaction in being able to send your loved one off in a manner that's respectful uh, to their wishes, and. and uh, oh, go
2: ahead. I, and I also think that um, these conversations don't have to just be about how someone wants to die the way we see these conversations it's really about how someone wants to live because with something like dementia or even cancer or ALS whatever illness it is there's a period of time till, till the moment that you take your last breath you're still living and so you can make active choices about how do you want that time to be And what do you want it to look like? And who do you want to be part of that? Um, And I think there's a real power in that.
0: Oh, I I agree. I agree. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm a firm believer in that as well. I mean, if we would have looked at my mom with the expectation the doctor gave us of five to seven years, And and kind of been looking at her watch going, well, she's not going to last much longer. She lived 30 years. I mean, (laughs) she had a good life, a really good life up until probably the last three years were more of a struggle. And to be honest, it was probably more of a struggle for
3: us than it was Mm -hmm. for her. Lisa, anything else that you want to add? Well, I'm going to have to quote uh, an expert in mindfulness and meditation. I'm sure many of you know his work. Uh, It's John Kabat-Zinn. You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Really, our philosophy is we don't have a way to make this all go away. I wish we did, um, but we can be there with you as you walk your own path um, through this. Well,
0: and there's such beautiful lessons in that, just that quieting down and being supportive of somebody. Um, I've been lucky enough to be with many people when they pass, and it's just as beautiful as a birth. And I know a lot of people don't understand that. But until you've been through that process um, yourself, there's just a there's an awakening I think within one's soul when you are able to really be still and be supportive of someone in that in, that end part of their journey, and again throughout their journey, you know, with dementia of just accepting who they are and what they're capable of doing. Um, because that's all any of us want in life, you know, it doesn't make any <laughs> difference if we, if we have an illness or not. I mean, that's really yeah. kind of what the, what the world wants. And yet we've drawn these lines of you're different, and I can't deal with that. It's too uncomfortable. And and that just really needs to change. So thank you, ladies, so much for spending time with us today. Um, we have been talking with the, uh, Dr. Ashwani uh, Babbitt, and also with Lisa Catalano. And they both work for a piney m d and if you're looking for someone to help you with aging and illness um, after this conversation, you know reach out to them. you can feel their compassion, their warmth they they get the journey um, they're not about intimidation, they're really about supporting and helping you through this process, knowing each and every one of us needs something a little bit different as far as our audience goes, I would like you to be a giver of hope. Like, click and share the show. To me, it's not about the numbers for Alzheimer's Speaks. It's really about spreading knowledge, letting people get connected to services and products and tools that they need. Maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow, maybe a year from now. Alzheimer's Speaks was was devised on a mission of shifting care from crisis to comfort. And the more knowledge we have up front, Um, the easier any of our journeys are going to be, no matter what kind of journey is slotted for us. And so again, please be a giver of hope. Visit their website. Um, We will have all of that contact information in the show notes uh, from website to Facebook, Instagram, again, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. You cannot not find them. And don't forget to um, download that free ebook, Three Surprising Secrets to Living Well. Thanks, everyone. Bye now.
3: It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebastik, here, host of Retire Repurposed.